It is this morning a privilege and a blessing to be able to be with you and to preach and to preach a passage of encouragement like this. I do want to reiterate what our dear pastor said earlier about the way in which as a church we're thankful for those who are serving or have served in the, in the military and give us the freedom to do what we're doing this morning. We don't have to worry about our government crushing us or another. We have the privilege and opportunity to share the grace of God in Christ freely. That certainly is a blessing. So this morning we're going to move quickly then into this passage of Scripture. And you'll see that Jeremy very helpfully put a title to this sermon. Can we choose another path to maturity other than trials? And our statement often is, please, Lord, isn't there another way? And so I hope from this passage, you'll see not only that there's not another way, but God's mercy and love and His intention for you is this path. And it's through this path that your capacity to enjoy Him is made great in this life. Many of you might be too young to have any idea what these words mean Morrison's King's Table some of you might well know what it means Golden Corral now we go to Panera Bread and we we get a little and pay a lot back in those days we got a lot and paid a little those are called a smorgasbord or a buffet You could choose what you wanted, as much as you wanted. And sometimes I believe that as I look at myself, that's certainly the way I would prefer to do life. Lord, give me a choice about how I choose to live this thing because the many things that I face are quite challenging. And so... Many have this thought in life, I'd much rather control the things that come. And we love control, don't we? Yeah, we do. And so we have these books that are written. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And so we all have these kinds of ways of thinking. In us, by nature, Trials themselves are something that we look at and say, I want to avoid at all cost. And yet we understand in this particular passage, the very way in which we approach that thing is altogether different. And I want you to see that not only in James is this the truth, but from Genesis to Revelation, all of those who have known through the years God in His greatness have experienced and come to the conclusion that James had reached here. That for those of us who live in this life pursuing God, to count trials joy is consistent with our pursuit of Him. That's a challenging statement, and I hope as we go forward, I can make good on that, as one old preacher used to say. What are trials? They're physical ailments. They're from birth sometimes we have birth defects or other things that our children experience or we have. They can be mental struggles. They can be diseases or cancer. They can be things that affect our body in different ways, be it our neck, our back, our arms, our legs. 
Our children who go astray and disobey, who struggle in school, who have learning disabilities or other disabilities. It could be a difficult boss. Or if you're a boss, it could be difficult employees. Day-to-day work situations. If I ask you this, if I ask you today how last week went, did you ever hit your finger with a hammer? Did everything go the way you thought it would when you started that day? And you would agree with me, not much went the way I thought it would at all. That's pretty consistent, isn't it, in life? The things I planned to do, it didn't happen. I go home and my house needs repair. My faucets are dripping. My car broke down. I don't have the money. There's a nail in my tire. Health issues concern us. How we're going to pay for health care is a problem. I go to school and I got a teacher that misunderstands the way I learn or doesn't understand who I am. My friends at times disrespect me. They turn their back on me. They talk about me. The horrible thing that often happens in our life is that we find ourselves bearing a child or a spouse or a friend or even ourselves facing that reality. We learn tomorrow that my credit card was taken and now I'm broke and busted. Everything's gone. Someone steals everything I have. I face financial struggles or my wife doesn't listen to me like she should. They are endless amounts of things that this word trial includes. And so it would be on us, having recently went and voted, I'm certain if we had a choice and we said, you want to vote for trials in your life? Or would you rather have a life of ease and comfort? I dare say that that would win in a landslide that we would check the box that says comfort. But I want you to note that this biblical theme is everywhere in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. And it's summed up, I believe, by Eliphaz in Job 5 and 7. But man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. We can mention men like this. Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, on and on we go. Men who spent time in a pit, stripped, taken advantage of by their own brothers, experiencing deep hardships, gripped by moments of fear. David running around, hiding in a cave. His own son trying to take his throne. Struggle after struggle after struggle. You signing up for that? Rarely we would, would we? But even Christ, I didn't have, I didn't give uh, Jim any idea exactly that this verse I was going to use, but he read it out of Isaiah 53. It even identifies our Savior with a man that was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Just imagine. A man who deserved just the opposite. Who lived his life in a lot of ways early on in obscurity. Misunderstood by his family. 
in the end rejected by his friends turned on by those he came to love even in his own hometown he did not many miracles because they didn't believe so we see this reality facing us on every hand we see those used mightily in the scripture like John the Baptist losing his hand at the hands of a wicked king with a sword by some soldier who didn't even know who he was apostles as far as we know all of them lost their life maybe John lived out his having been tarred and feathered on the Isle of Patmos trial after trial after trial and yet what I've noticed in my life is that whenever some difficult experience comes I kick against it I fight it you know not in a conscious way but sadly unconsciously what about you have you like James come to the understanding that it's through these trials that God's preparing me and helping me to be a person that the Bible speaks about that lacks nothing. We'll get to what that means. So what would that mean? Those who are in comfort or ease then will lack everything. Boy, that's just the opposite of the way we think, isn't it? Now you can get online and get on the computer and you can type in how you want to look and what you want to be and the physique you have and this is me right boy if you could do that what would you be what you normally wouldn't be is you that's why in our society we have such issue with self esteem right we always want to be somebody else we want somebody else's experiences we don't like ours In Romans 5 and 3, we see this very theme. We rejoice in suffering, Paul said, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character, and character hope. Peter, having said the same thing, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that a tested faith, a faith more precious than gold that perishes might be found to praise, honor, and glory at Christ's return. Exodus 20 and 20, our dear pastor has been helping us through that. The very reason that Christ took those folks and headed them out into the desert was to bring them to trial, to purify them and grow them in grace. So the first thing I want you to note about this passage of Scripture is this. Ask yourself this question. What is your attitude toward trials? What is it? I mean, how in the world, then, if the questions asked of us, would we answer it? You, we look often at our kids, and what do we say? Well, you're going to change that attitude right now. What do you mean by that? That means you don't like the way they're acting. You don't like the way they responded to something you commanded or asked of them. You've heard the statement as a kid, and you've made it as an adult. And as an adult, you feel quite good about it. You look at them, you're going to change your attitude. If they looked at mommy and daddy and said, you need to change your attitude, that wouldn't work well, would it? But that probably needs to be said a time or two. 
not really. But the Lord says here, consider your attitude toward trials. Do you live in fear of them? Or maybe like the psalmist, I want to note two things here. First, in Psalm 73, I believe this attitude is reflected by the psalmist. We compare ourselves with the wicked or with unbelievers. We experience trials and we look across our street and we see a man that never goes to church or gives money. He's never served Christ in any way. That man is healthy. He doesn't have cancer. His wife's not struggling. He hasn't buried a child. His children obey and go to school. They're good learners. You've experienced just the opposite. The psalmist said this in Psalm 73, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Isn't that us though? Don't at times we find ourselves in a great struggle. We're walking through deep waters. We're experiencing financial trials. We look at the wicked and they're the wealthy. They don't have any outward of what we see as needs. My, my. It's a struggle for us and we like the psalmist find ourselves in great difficulty. And so our benefit from our trial is a meager benefit because we are comparing ourselves with those who are wicked or not following Christ or lost. Is that you? When your car breaks down, you look across the street at the man with a new one and say, I can't afford that. Look at me. Oh, poor me. How many times have I done that? Numerous. Or you might be like the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. In Exodus 16 and 3, you complain about God's motives. You believe that God is in control, just like they did. But what they find themselves doing in Exodus 16 and 3 is being a bit hungry, and all of a sudden they turn on the God who split the Red Sea. Now think about that just a minute. He just took the most powerful army and with ten plagues dismantled the nation. And all of a sudden, your belly says, I'm starving and nobody cares. Really? But isn't that us? That's me. So here's what God got accused of of having not enough graves in Egypt, so he wanted to bring them out there and do them harm and kill them, every one, right there with hunger. God, why didn't you just kill us over there? You killed the Egyptians by bringing the water on them. You're going to bring us out here and starve us to death, a long, difficult death. But isn't that sometimes the way we look at our trials? God, you know, the government's done something to me. Regulators have caused me great harm or difficulty. My employees won't listen. There's struggles in my home. There's all kinds of difficulties. And God, do you not care about me? You just want to do me harm. You know, it's rare that we would speak up and say that in the middle of Sunday school class. But the sadness of it is that we'll think about that as we drive our car down the road. That comes into our mind and we entertain that thought. God's against me. But what then now ought we to have as an attitude, 
as the Bible says here in the book of James, count it all joy when you meet various trials. What in the world does that look like? What does it look like to meet trials in this way? The Bible speaks here in this way. Count has to do with the way you think your mind. Your mind leads your feelings. You know, you tell your kids something like this. Son, would you think before you say what you just said to your mother? How many of you have ever said that to your children? And here's what God's saying to us. Would you think before you make some silly statement about trials that have nothing to do with the truth about them? Would you just think about it for just a minute? The very word count is that that's what it's about. That's what it's telling us. Think about, let your mind lead your feelings. <clears throat> this ideal is clearly indicated. This intentionality, not being led by our passions about the particular situation of which we face, but rather we think just the opposite. We let our mind with the truths of the Scripture guide us in the way that we think about a particular situation and a particular scenario that we face. And then we let our feelings follow. That's the way the Scriptures here teach. You see, you've already went to the word joy and you've asked this question. How can I be joyful about something that creates and causes such pain? It's because the first thing you do is you let your mind lead your feelings in order that you have the correct response. That's the way the Bible speaks. Our brother Derek prayed in his prayer that the sister who was going through a struggle would experience in the midst of it not this shallow, light-hearted joy, but a deeper, more inward delight. Exactly what this idea in James is speaking about. The very thing Paul in Romans 5 and 3 and Peter in 1 Peter 1 and 7, and all through the Old Testament, the very thing of which they speak. This shalom, this peace that includes a joy, this idea is the way we ought to live our life. It was even that Christ in Hebrews demonstrated for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. For what? The joy that was set before Him. You see, for us, as we look at life and trials, and the discipleship program by the early apostles was something like this, through many persecutions or difficulties we'll enter the kingdom. My, my. That's not a good sales pitch, is it at all? It's rather come. You won't have any more struggles. Nothing else to bother you. Trust Christ and your life is fixed forever. Your kids will do what you say. Everybody at work will act the way you want them to. Your car will never break down. Your house will never fall into disrepair. That's not true. As a matter of fact, completely opposite. You're going to experience all the things that the other people experience in this fallen world. And as well, we're going to experience persecution because of the name of Christ. That's what the early apostles taught the churches as they formed them. But here you see, so our mind helps us come to this place where as we approach these trials, not in fear, 
but in joy. The question is going to be answered shortly just why we can face them in joy. You mean we can find pleasure in pain or inward smile and outward suffering and rejoicing in rejection? It's not that in those particular trials, who wants to go through any of those difficulties? It's not that in and of themselves, you see. But what we see in this passage is this, and notice with me, so that we can answer this question, how it is that we come out of this reality of trial with this attitude of joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, 4 in verse 3 gives a reason why. You know, that's the Scripture, isn't it? We don't just ask the people of God to go through trials, grit and bear it, buddy, pull up your bootstraps and be a man about it. That's not what this is about. It's far different than that, as a matter of fact. For you know, there's three critical things, I believe, in verse 3 that help us enter trial with that deep abiding reality that God produces in us, this joy or rejoicing that comes even in the midst of a trial. So we see then the value of the trials in verse 3 started with this word for, tying it together with verse 2 and given a solid reason for us being able to count all of our trials in joy. Notice with me first. He says, you know. What does that mean? You know. So you see, what it is that we have to be able for our mind to grip is the knowledge of the truth. You see, he said, count it all joy. And we talked about the reality of that being the process of your thinking, leading your feelings, coming to the realization that even in trial there's joy. And it's this passage that helps us understand that. For you know... The opposite of that is, for you don't know. You're ignorant. Or I'm ignorant of a particular truth. Not ignorant in the sense that I'm a dummy, but ignorant in that I just don't know. But James writing to the churches scattered, the Jewish Christians, said, you know. And as I look across this congregation, the exciting truth is, over the years, the faithful ministry of this pulpit, the Sunday school classes and other places, we can say with confidence, brother and sister, you know. Isn't that neat to be able to say it? You're not taught every week that you're going to walk through this life without pain and suffering. You've not seen a Christ who's been separated from the agonies of the cross and Calvary. You see, we understand that there's a crown of thorns before there was a resurrection. And we've not painted a picture different than that for the people who've chose to embrace Him. You know. And it was the day in which Hosea found himself that God through the prophet said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, for a lack of true knowledge. They were being destroyed. So the reality of it was they faced trials and this statement couldn't have been made, could not have been made. For you know, they could not make that statement. For they had been misled by their priests and leaders. They did not 
No, that's sad, isn't it? But the delightful thing this morning as we look at this passage is, for you know it's a process of you understanding in your mind the things that God has designed for us. So it's an encouragement to us this morning as we sat here to be reminded again as we are constantly the value of knowing this book. You say, if I'm going to face trial in any way and come out with an attitude that's biblical and scriptural, that I'm going to be able to rejoice in my trials, then you've got to know. Right? You've got to know. The second thing you see in this particular passage of Scripture that's so important, not only do we have to value knowledge, we have to value a tested faith. You say, what in the world? For you know that the testing of your faith. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's the process of which we've explained already, the children of Israel experience in which as a church we've been going through. It's the process that you're in right now. You say, preacher, I'm not good at taking tests. That doesn't matter. (laughs) You're in one, all right? (laughs) I'm not good at it. Uh, I'm not either. But we got to understand. Peter mentioned it. The testing or trying of your faith. Here it's mentioned. The testing of your faith. You see an untested faith. Is a shallow faith. It's the very statement that Christ made in Mark chapter 4. About the seed and the sower. It was the second type of seed. That fell on shallow ground who received it quickly. It sprung up, but there was no root. And soon as testing came, a trouble because of the Word, they quickly fled away. A tested faith is a faith that when He appears is to His praise, honor, and glory. You see, brothers and sisters, what God's doing in you is expanding your ability to have confidence in Him. It's expanding your embrace of the Savior. And the only way that happens is through trial. All of the things that I mentioned, God has planned for you in one form or another. You said, well, can I learn this theoretically? Man, that's what I was hoping for. We had one professor in systematic theology, Mr. Robertson, a sweet old man, sweet gentleman. You had to memorize everything he had. You had to cram it in there. You had to get the I right. You had to cross the T and everything. The next day after the test, you forgot about everything you had because you learned it only in theory. Lord, can't I learn this theoretically? Can't we just watch it in Moses' life or David's life or somebody else on the pew of my church's life? Do I really have to go through it too? Amen. Exactly right, brother. The value of a tested faith. How is it that you value that? Man, if we could look in your life and in your mind what you spend your dollars on or what you value. My question this morning is, in what way do you value a tested faith? In what way do you value faith at all? By faith, we've embraced Christ. It's this medium that has been a gift to us by God through Christ that's so precious, you see. It's the thing that God, above every other, wants to grow in us. It's the way in which we attach ourselves to the Savior. (laughs) 
by it we apprehend more and more of His glory. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You see, you must in your life value faith above every other thing. It's critical. It's more important than your broke-down cars. It's more important than the success of your business. It's more important than every other trial that you will face. A tested faith is a valued faith. Peter describes it as more precious than gold, though tested by fire that perishes. That was the thing he could understand that people that he was in his were in his hearing understood gold and its value. So he said, "Faith that's tested is much more precious than that." The third thing we see is the value of steadfastness. Now, this word "steadfastness" is an important word because you will note that in. Verse 4, it says, unless steadfastness have its full effect, right? What does that mean? <clears throat> well, steadfastness is a word that means remaining or abiding under. So, you give somebody something to carry. And if it's your son or your daughter and it's a bit too heavy, what are they doing? Oh, Dad, help me! It's too heavy. But what do you tell often, especially your son... I've often told Logan, Logan, a girl could carry that. You pick it up, son. <laughs> it's like, come on. You're never going to be any more than you are unless you pick that thing up. Granddad, it's too heavy. Pick it up. Bear up under it. This is the thought. Are we those that run from every trial? Do we make excuse for every difficulty? Do I kick against the folks whom God uses as an instrument to bring trials in my life? Oh, very often I do. My wife will attest to that. Things like this. For me, something different for you. I get a call. One of your guys has just hit a gas line. In my mind, you know what I just realized? I just lost several thousand dollars. I might have to hire Cliff to defend me. Those kind of things for me. And others. And for you, it's others. But here's the thing. It's not the thing that's the big thing. It's the way I respond to the thing that's the big thing. So steadfastness is the ability or the will, the will to remain under whatever trial it is, irregardless of its weight or difficulty, because you realize the value of it. That's why he says, let it have its full effect. Don't run away from it. It's doing you good. In the moment, you don't feel the good, do you? I look around this congregation. So many of you have experienced things I never could. There's been weights lay on the backs of families in this church that are beyond what I can imagine someone could care. But you've been a testimony to the grace of God. It's a testimony to the fact that God doesn't put on us more than we can bear. And with every challenge, He bears it up for us, doesn't He? He carries, carries us on wings like eagles. But the willingness to bear up under for the sake of the value that it brings to us is so vital. How often we find ourselves 
in a difficult circumstance, and what do we do? We're willing to lie our way out of it. Man, we just create more issue, don't we? We do. And watch the world. They can't bear up under their difficulties in, in a thousand ways. They have to deal with a conscience cluttered with difficulty. And what does it do in the end? For many, it drives them mad. Bear up under, the Bible says, let, stead, let this steadfastness have its complete effect in your life. So what is it? What is the purpose of these particular trials? This word, perfection and completion, the first thing I know most of you are saying is, well, I'm done with this chapter. Perfection ain't going to happen in my life. I'm far from that. It doesn't mean what you think it means, that you're going to walk around sinless. We were talking the other night, and Don Reed said, I asked Evelyn, Evelyn, do you ever sin? So, so some of us, we know a lady like Evelyn who is so gracious and faithful, but even Evelyn confessed that she sinned, right? So we find in each of us this idea that perfection is a fleeting thing. It doesn't mean perfection from sin, but I want you to see what it does mean. These two words, perfection and completion. Now we have in here some teachers, and we have many parents, and your goal is that when you put your kids in kindergarten, and you get them out after they graduate to 12th grade, there's been some change. Now for some of you, there's a question about that, right? But the goal is that when you put them in kindergarten, and you get them out after 12 years, what's went on? Some maturity, right? They've learned some things about history. They've learned some things important about math. They've learned some critical, some of them, about English. Some of you might say, I missed that class. But the goal is that we have a well-rounded student who understands that there's more country than one, and that's Kentucky. And who understands that there's more than two plus two. You can even get letters in math called algebra. And that English, there are periods put rightly in sentences. Why do we want them to have these things in their life? So that they can work and be healthy citizens, right? So that they understand what it means to read a road sign. When they're home cooking, they know what a pint is to put it in a cake. They can measure things correctly. When you send them to work for me, and they open a tape measure, it does, these six little digits right here, what do they mean? So Jim, you teach them, those are eighth marks or sixteenth marks. It's helpful, right? It enables them to be successful in living. So we want them mature. In life. The same thing here, brothers and sisters. This maturity that comes through the school of trials is so vital. As students, we learn the lessons while fixing our eyes on the teacher who himself in Romans 12 is spoken of like this. He himself is the author and finisher of our faith who carefully and precisely and just what we need when we need it brings these trials into our lives. We run this race of faith and patience 
fixing carefully our eyes on Him. The one who went before us and demonstrated the benefit of trial in every way. And we see and hear from Him, I love you and my goal in this trial is your good. And in it all, you're more than a conqueror through me. There's nothing that can come in your life apart from my hand. And nothing but good is the goal of it. My goal is to separate you from the love of this world. It will kill you. My goal is to show you my glory. To pull back the reality of what heaven's going to be for all eternity. To give you a taste. To be an appetizer of the things that are to come. So that in your heart and mind, you spend your days longing to see Him revealed from heaven. You see, this is the purpose of it. So that you wouldn't value things that are of no value at all. So that you wouldn't gain the things of this world and lose your soul. Wouldn't it be sad? As a child on this pew, you live your life gathering up money. And you make it to the top five in all the world. You have billions. And you lose your soul. What did you get? When you received the praise and the accolades of the world. And they talk of you with glaring words. And you reach your pinnacle of being the greatest athlete. The smartest businessman. In the wake of all of your success, you're the greatest failure. You see, as I look at my life, the most dangerous thing is not my failures, but my successes. That God would let me be successful without giving me a thorn. I would be conceited and arrogant and prideful. And brother and sister, you would be nothing less. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians in the last few chapters said of himself, having seen things which no man saw, having heard things he couldn't even speak, a messenger of Satan was given him a thorn in the flesh. He begged God three times, take it away, and God said, I can't. Paul, you'd be so conceited you'd miss it. Brothers and sisters, the reason we count trials joy is because it enables us to it enables us to see him clearer and clearer and clearer and his glory more and more and more in our life. How many of you here want to enjoy in this life all of Christ that you can? And I'm certain many inward would say that's me, pastor. I want to enjoy all that I can of Christ. Well then this is the way he's chosen for you to walk. And the joy comes from this reality that in it, He's making Himself known to you. He has given you things beyond measure, unsearchable. He's rooting you and grounding you in the love of Christ, which you in your life ought to pursue its height, height, depth, width, and length. It's beyond our human understanding. So can you with me this morning? As we give thanks to God, say, God, change my attitude. Correct my value system and purify my purpose. Let's pray. Father, we beg you. Lord, we beg you this morning. Help us as we long 
to know and see more of the Savior. Whatever it takes, Lord, and we know what it takes, it's these trials. Change our attitude. Help us with our value system. Purify our purpose. We beg you in the name of Christ. Amen.